You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey, Portiva, what are you doing over there? Wait a minute. You're not messing with the TC Pro, are you? Wait, you're trying to make them better? Come on, let's not get crazy. Just put the shoes down, walk away. We'll have another espresso and talk about this, amico. The TC Pro is pretty much perfect as is. A pair of those free-sold El Cap for Pete's sake. Let's not forget that little Tommy Caldwell designed those with a box of Crayolas and some glitter glue while most of us were still wondering why our downturned shoes wouldn't smear for merda. Ascolta me, fratello. The off-with maniacs are going to lose it when you change their go-to shoe. And let me tell you, you don't want to mess with those people. They're loco. Oh, wait. You're telling me Tommy and Alex have suggested some changes to make them better? Well, those guys are down. I guess I can't complain too much. Go ahead and see what you can do. And let us know when we can check out the new improved TC Pro at Sportiva.com or try them on at our favorite local shop. But look here, Sportiva. You start futzing with those Miras, and it's pistols at dawn. Capiche? Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin-jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the Normacast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head and who enjoys random praise from friends and strangers alike, go to PeterWGilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the Enormacast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is September 27th, 
2021, about 10.30 here in Colorado, and this is episode 228 of the Cast, a conversation with Aaron Livingston. But I tell you, this interview is a little bit hard to categorize. Aaron got in touch with me because we know each other, sort of. We have mutual friends. We've kind of orbited one another in the last few years. Kind of the case of him showing up in Moab as my time there was sort of getting limited a little bit more. So my interest in climbing around there was waning a little bit about the time he showed up. So we went climbing together in Rifle, and then we got together later after dinner, sat down in the trailer, the new mobile studio, the new old mobile studio, and uh, sat down for this interview. And the reason that Aaron got in touch with me specifically through a friend was wanting to talk about his friend, Nolan Smythe, who he came up climbing with and was basically, you know, his brother from another mother. And Nolan was killed last year, 2020, on El Gigante, a big wall down in Chihuahua, Mexico, with Aaron. Rockfall incident that cut his rope. And Aaron decided that he wanted to talk about that. He wanted to sort of pay tribute to his friend and explain what happened as, I suppose, a cautionary tale, but also just to clarify. And I think that's part of moving through something like that. But yeah, that's kind of the second half of the interview. The first half of the interview, we actually sort of, uh, you know, do a little bit on Aaron and uh, get to know each other and have some good laughs and kind of just talk about what it's like to be a modern sort of Gumby coming up and climbing, which is Aaron's background before he got to be a guide and, and an excellent rock climber, him and Nolan both. So yeah, it starts out that we're kind of having a lot of fun and, and yucking it up. And, and then there's this kind of pressure that's waiting because I knew what we were there to talk about. And once we do get to it, man, we just kind of barrel forward through it. And it's, uh, when I was in the edit, I was just kind of like, wow, we were, we were kind of stumbling around and just, uh, you know, trying to keep it going there. Um, so yeah, this one gets heavy about halfway through. So be prepared for that. And Aaron and I do have this El Gigante connection. The last time I climbed with Hayden Kennedy was on El Gigante. And um, I explained it in the interview, but but also here I should mention that of the three people I went to El Gigante with, everybody's gone. Kyle Dempster is gone, Justin Griffin is gone, and of course Hayden Kennedy is gone. And so though our expedition went off without a hitch, actually was very successful, it still holds this very intense place in my mind. Certainly not as intense as where it exists for Aaron, but that connection maybe made this thing work, or at least made... Aaron comfortable to talk about his friend Nolan and what happened to them on the wall. It's a long one, so we should probably just get right to it, and everybody can get to know Aaron Livingston right here, right now, and also get to know his friend Nolan Smythe. You smell that? The aroma of Chris Mountain Dew on living cowhide? That dusky scent only means one thing. That's right. September is upon us. Getting up early to mend them fences all summer is about to pay off when them crisp temps let you pull down on holds smaller than a whisker on a tadpole. Dime Edge is going to feel like 10 pesos. They're significantly larger. Look it up. 
And as you gallop into September with a twinkle in your eye and a spur in your buttocks, let Black Diamond be your trusty steed. They got all you need for pebble wrestling, sport climbing, and of course the best traditional climbing protection this old cowpoke's ever seen. If you ain't riding the range with a saddlebag full of camelots, well son, you ain't cowboy, or cowgirl, or cowperson. You get my meaning. So when it comes to poking cows, well, that's your business. But as far as climbing goes, nobody has you covered head to toe like Black Diamond. Check them out at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop. And though I might have gone too far this time, at the moment, Black Diamond is still a proud sponsor of the Normal Cast. I wanted to ask you about guiding, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you about, as a climber, as someone who's out there doing all this stuff, like what was the choice to get into guiding and was it something you were conscious of or did you fall into it? Oh, uh, yeah. So when I started climbing, uh-huh. I thought I was really hot shit sport climbing in like big cottonwood. And so I was like, I'm going to be a guide. I took this SPI course, which I bought a trad rack for because I had never trad climbed. So uh-huh. I, I had no idea what was going on in the real world of guiding. I took this course and the instructors at the end were like, you suck. You need to go climbing more. Do not take this exam. And at that point, I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm not going to do this. I'll do something else. And for a while, I kind of lost any interest in the idea because I was living in Moab. All my friends who were climbers that were guides were never going climbing. Like creek season would hit and they'd be like, oh, well, I've got a crack camp and then I have to go to Wall Street for 10 days in a row and then do morning glory and. I was kind of like, that sucks. I don't want to do that. I like Mm -hmm. rock climbing. But then I moved away and bounced around, worked on a tower crew for a while, and I needed an out. And I didn't really know what I was going to do because I made the decision last second. So I was like, I'll just try guiding out, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the Moab season was kind of dead. It was middle of summer. No one was hiring. So I had a friend, Lindsey Hamm in Uray. Sure. And uh, I shot Lindsey a message. And I was like, hey, do you think they might hire me in Uray? I've always thought about moving there, so I guess I'll try that. And she put a word in, and they gave me a job. And when I started, the deal was I was just going to stay for the summer. And then winter came around, and my boss was like, well, what do you, how do you feel about climbing some ice? And I was like, I haven't done that since I started climbing because I hated it. <laughs> and he and I was like, I don't know if I'm actually any good at it. And he was like, well, we'll give you like a month. You're a good rock climber. Yeah, ice climbing's easy, so you'll probably be fine. And so I was like out leading ice like second day back. And I remember a training day was like out on Stairway to Heaven in Eureka, Mm -hmm. thousand foot route. And it was a wide out blizzard. And my friend, our friend Andres, he was my like observer. And he was like, you're taking the crux and you're going (laughs) to like it. And it was wide out and I was eating snow and it was pouring down my jacket. But I did it and I came down and he was like, that was pretty okay. You still need another month or so. So I put in another month and then found I actually really liked guiding ice. Okay. Mostly because it's a lot easier to teach than rock. And that season in Ure gives me the opportunity to go rock climbing in my free time. So I don't really burn out on what I really like to do in my free time. And when it comes to guiding, I much prefer guiding ice or alpine routes to guiding rock. Right. So it kind of just fell into my lap, more or less. 
Did, did you did you go through then the the AMGA? I'm in the process. Uh, yeah. I've I've done like an ice course for the mm-hmm. AMGA, and I've done a rock course, and I have an advanced course this year. But mm-hmm. it's just expensive. Yeah, and it's it's just you don't make that much money as a guy. Right. So uh, I'm like chipping away at it. Right, right. But uh, I I mean I think I'd like to get a pin. It'd be cool to be able to guide in Chamonix and get a pay bump. Right. Yeah. So I mean that's how it works, right? It's like you're talking about a pin and that's basically like the certification to be able to guide in Europe as well. Yeah, the international certification. Right, right. Which uh also includes skiing, which mm-hmm. means I'm going to have to buckle down on skiing cuz I'm a snowboarder. Okay. I skied when I was a kid, but I gave it up and now I'm kicking myself cuz I can ski the resort, but I I can't ski powder right. really at all. And so I kind of have to work on that. So you have to be able to do everything. Yeah, and it kind of seems like the whole program is geared to favor skiers, right? In my opinion. Well, that's very Euro, dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's like you have to. I, well, I think they bumped the rock up to eleven A now, mm-hmm. but it used to be like ten D. And skiing, the 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 whole criteria is you must be inspiring, and that's pretty subjective. So it's hard really? to be. It's hard to look at my ski and be like. Am I inspiring or do I still suck? Well, do you ski with your hair in a ponytail or free? Because uh, if it, if you just went free, you might be I might inspiring. Earn some style points. <laughs> I had a friend I that did. Inspired. A, he did an application video with Alice in Chains for the soundtrack, so maybe I'll hijack that. There you but go. I'll pick a different album. He did Jar of Flies. Right. That's a little bit of a downer. That's a little downer. Yeah, yeah it's not my favorite album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Inspire. I think that could be inspiring. Yeah. So, so I'll find some good Shane McConkey yeah. like saucer boy outfit and I'll let my hair <laughs> fly and see how it goes. Yeah. You don't have to ski to inspire at that point. Yeah. You just yeah, have to look good. Well, we, I made the hair joke because you told me a story today that um, ladies, especially older ladies, compliment your hair all the time. Yeah. Definitely ladies who were going to Led Zeppelin concerts right. in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> it was on karaoke night. Yeah. Karaoke night was yeah. a real hit. I got a lot of free drinks. <laughs> And for for tips around doing karaoke Led Zeppelin, the song to do is... It's, hey, hey, what what can can I do? But as long as you can sing in a solid A key, everything else is off the table and it's sacrilege. Yeah. But that song song can be done. Yeah. He doesn't get too too wild on that one. So that's a good tip. Yeah. The outro is really hard, though. Yeah. You really want to nail that one down. (laughs) Before you get up there. I used to... For a while, I was trying to do... Uh, you know, some some good Jovi, Dead or Alive. That's and, a toughie too. It's so hard. You get through most of it, and then you got to start hitting some notes in the end. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you pretty much fade unless yeah, you're, unless you're, you're just John. like you're just like, can you cut this? <laughs> I'd really like to be done. Can I just mic drop and walk off the stage? Yeah. So by that, you know, by that time, if you can do the point the mic at the crowd because that's what all those old singers do once they can't sing anymore yeah is they on their high notes they just have the crowd do it it's so. a really good move if you have the screen behind you with the words so they can they can fill in for you yeah anyway but <clears throat> so the other question i kind of wanted to get into is you know you mentioned being today being from heber city yeah right so up in utah which i'm sure plays heavily in your um you know, your sort of origin stories as a climber, but like, uh, and this is going to sound weird, but like what goes on over there in Heber city? Because Man. just to, I mean, we're not, I'm a Colorado person. You're Utah. 
Colorado. So we know about this this place, but it's kind of like behind the hills, uh, on the other side of the hills from from Salt Lake City. Yeah, if you go um, to the top of Brighton, you're like, what's that right back there? And is that a town? Yeah, and and there's like you can get to Vernal. Um, it's like definitely like it's close to Salt Lake City, but you cross some invisible line where you're like rural and yeah. not urban anymore. Yeah. And I then mean, just the name of it has always been intriguing to me. So tell me about yeah. growing up in Heber City. Oh, man, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't really say how it is now because it's kind of boomed and become like suburbia right. more than anything. Right. But when I was a kid, it was a total redneck town. And it was one of those towns that has a certain family that has 50 kids in every grade that are all related. Like it's all really tight knit, like right. ranch families. Right? right. So it was like rough living there and i was a skateboarder kid so i definitely didn't fit in with that crowd at all and uh mostly i just tried to hang out with my friends and skateboard but for most of my life there there was there weren't even like paved roads like when i moved there it was dirt so i was like skateboarding in my broken driveway and walking my skateboard to school knowing full well i wasn't gonna do anything with it <laughs> that's part of skateboarding though yeah just carrying your board around but identify. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, I wanted people to know how yeah. cool I was. Right. But, uh, it was, it was a rough place to grow up, honestly. The police were terrible and they targeted most of me and my friends. Like, mm -hmm. it was, it was a regular thing for like the same cops to target the same friends over and over and over again. And, and we would all like try and tell people like this was going on, but no one believed us. And, Recently, every cop that we ever accused of that has been fired for misconduct. Really? Yeah. So it was like that small town, like you have a target on your back if you don't fit the mold, you right. know? So it was, it was hard. But uh, I had good friends. Right. And uh, my family was cool. I grew up Mormon. So that I was, was wondering if, like, I mean, I know it had to be, you know, a pretty heavy LDS yeah. influence up there. Yeah, really right. heavy. Really, really heavy. And, uh, like that wasn't for me so that was rough growing up mm -hmm. like especially i think i was like 14 and i told my parents i wasn't into it and my mom her family like came to salt lake like with brigham young so she's like og whoa yeah but my dad was a convert so he he kind of got it and was more accepting but it took my mom a really long time and that was rough mm -hmm. and uh yeah there's shortly after that they sent me to like a wilderness therapy camp which I hated it at first, but it turned out to be so cool. Right. It was like one, it was the best six weeks ever. It was right. rad. You hated the idea of it, but you yeah, got into it when I you I got were kidnapped there. from school by my parents. <laughs> it was one of those. Mm -hmm. Oh wow. Yeah, they picked me up and they were like, We're going down to Salt Lake. Well, guess what, mom and dad? It fucking backfired. <laughs> yeah, it kinda did. <laughs> it kinda did. I was sort of like cleaning up my act and then right. you hang out in the woods with a bunch of derelict kids and you come home and you're like, you know, I really I want a party. <laughs> so it kinda backfired. Oh, that's oh, those guys. Those guys really clued me into some shit we haven't even been doing here. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, I was like, I've heard, I heard about so many things I never even knew existed or yeah. were done on this planet. Well, <laughs> well, the the funny thing about that is, or one of the strange things is that in my town too, that would happen to kids, or you would get in trouble with the law, and you'd actually be sentenced to go on 
like an outward bound trip. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, we're talking like high end suburbia, right? Yeah. And that always just like pissed me off because I was like already into this shit. And I'm like, well, I'm not getting in trouble, but I don't, I, you know, I can't afford to go on one of these trips. Like, what do I have to vandalize to get, you know, to get put on an outward bond trip? Funny enough, my friend Kyler was exactly the same. And he was hanging out in our same skateboarder crew. And he was in a Mormon family, too. And when I came, like, no one knew where I went. I just disappeared for six weeks. And I came. The cops have him. Yeah. They finally took him out. They finally took him out. Got rid of him. Finally wiped him out. Took him out of the county. No, I came home and my friend Kai was like, this is such bullshit. I've wanted to go to that program right. for like five years. Right. And I'm a terrible child. Yeah. I'm bad too. Yeah. He he wanted to go so bad. No, that's the way I felt. I was like, this is this is not fair at mm-hmm. all. Like, I want to go to Knowles. Yeah, I wasn't Knowles. I know, but, I, but it was like, I can't pony up that kind of money, you know. Yeah. To, to no, they, it's expensive. Stuff. Yeah. For sure. So you got sent off. Yeah. But it was good because my my relationship with my family got better. We got better at communicating, and I got better at just like expressing my feelings mm-hmm. in like a healthy way. And that was super. So good. that worked. That was that worked. And all, that was like all from the, this this thing. Yeah. Oh, because you just have six weeks to think about it, right. and every week you're like writing a letter to your parents oh, about right, what you think, right. and they're writing you one back, and they're the only people you're talking to, and yeah, that that aspect was great, mm-hmm. and made me a way happier kid i went like i went into the program with like being like skinny jeans like dyed black hair pierced lips like the whole shebang like punk rock look Mm -hmm. and i came home and immediately like bleached the black out buzzed my head let it grow back out blonde and started listening to zeppelin really yeah so life got way better (laughs) (laughs) all right what about your buddies were they okay with you with you switching over they had been trying to get me to forever. Oh, really? Yeah, because it wasn't really like a punk rock scene at all. There were a couple of friends who were like serious, hardcore, like punk kids. And right. they like I was somewhere in between like sure. the scene emo kid and a punk kid. So they always they all just gave me hell all the time. Constant harassment. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, I didn't grow up in a small town, but I have, well, you know, relatives in those types of places. And I spent time in there. And it's it's. You know, we're talking about these like stereotypes, but it's it's amazing how distinct the roles sort of become mm-hmm. and, you know, and how stereotypical it sort of does become in a way. And so maybe part of it was you got back and were like, I've just been playing this like assigned role and maybe I should like be my own person. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I think I was trying to like fit the mold of like the music I was listening to. Right. And uh it just wasn't really me, mm-hmm. honestly. And it was a really bad look. <laughs> like, I'm so glad MySpace disappeared because that's all it's the all evidence is gone. All the evidence is gone. Damn it. There's a there's a hard drive somewhere with There's it. one photo that my mom has that I told her can never see the light of oh, day. Come on. <laughs> we gotta post it on this post. We're gonna put it in the show notes, people. All right, all right. I'll try to I'll try to find it. Well listen, um, what does climbing where does it come in was it part of this wilderness therapy thing no it came later um i was probably like 21 or 20 Uh uh-huh and no i must have been 21 because me and a bunch of my friends from the hockey team in high school we all just were like we're partying too much we need to do like something to at least try to stay fit and so there was this uh like a fitness center in town 
um, the fit stop. We went there and we were like, we're going to lift weights. It's going to be sick. And there was this little climbing wall there. Like, a, it was pretty good. It, it had like a lead wall. It was like 30 or 40 feet tall. And then uh, there was a little bouldering cave. And so I just wandered away from the weights over there and just started bouldering around. And I I just thought it was fun. And I didn't really know anything about climbing. I didn't know any climbers. I'd never really met any. And uh, I just thought it was fun. And I started, like, goofing off on the bouldering wall for a while. And then it came up that my friends, Kyler, the one who was jealous of the wilderness program, right. and my friend Nolan had also been doing the same thing. But none of us had seen each other there. And we ran into each other one day and found out we were the only ones that were psyched. So... We kind of like went rogue and just tried to figure it out on our own. And since it was a gym that isn't like your typical gym now where they have like rules and you're not allowed to like practice fall and you need a tag to belay, none of that was in place. (laughs) So we were free to just do whatever we wanted. At the fit stop. At the fit stop, yeah. (laughs) So we were Googling how to tie in and how to belay and eventually small yeah it was great (laughs) and uh we would like climb on the lead wall which was like not that high and it would top out right in front of all the people on the treadmills and the upper Mm -hmm. floor and we'd like skip the last bolt and then jump from the anchor to practice falls (laughs) and yeah it was just a total junk show for a long time but uh then uh, this guy came in who was a climber, and he had climbed Moonlight Buttress, I think. I don't know if he free-climbed it or aid-climbed it or anything. His name was Sam, if I remember right. And so he saw that we were a total junk show, and he kind of helped us out a little bit. And then uh, kind of gave us free reign to just, like, set boulder problems. He wasn't going to let us, like, rig and set, like, top ropes or lead mm-hmm. routes, but they let us set boulder problems. And so it was kind of cool because we were just free-thinking, like... There was no one to tell us, like, this is how you do it, and right. these are the rules, and this is how climbing is done. And so, like, most people maybe try climbing, and someone's like, here's a crag where you can walk to the top and set a top rope. We never knew, even considered that that was possible. Right. <laughs> so, like, we went outside and, like, bought some gear and threw our money together, and we just, like, went for it. And we were leading routes because that was the only way we could think of to get ropes up and we had to be self-sufficient mm-hmm. because we wanted to climb, but there was no one to help us and no one to do it for us. So we kind of just dove head in and then Sam brought some magazines in and there was a, that classic photo from Baffin, I think that like mega portal edge camp, like four portal edges, I think on a wall and like a storm. And we saw that and we were like, well, that's what we got to do. Like, that's obviously the real deal. Mm-hmm. So we just got psyched, but like, we didn't know aid climbing was a thing or anything. So for us, we were like, well, you got to free climb and El Cap's really big. So you probably got to be really, really good to climb El Cap. So it was like a good booster, honestly, to not have any direction. Right. Because it gave us the freedom to find our own mm-hmm. and figure out what we were psyched on. So, and you said you were pretty old at that point? I was 20 or 21. Okay. Yeah. And you were just hanging around town. Yeah, I was just bumming around town. I wasn't really skateboarding anymore because it was starting to wreck me. Yeah. Like my ankles were falling apart and my hands were always just like broken and it it just wasn't suiting me anymore. And even things that I used to be able to do like that I had on lockdown, like tricks I could do every time down anything, they they were just going away. Like I was eating shit on like the most basic tricks, like really hard, Mm -hmm. nonstop. 
And so I hit a point where I was like, I, I need something else. I mean, what would have been, I mean, this is sort of like conjecture, but what do you suppose the future for Aaron would have been without like finding the bouldering cave at the, at the fit oh, stop? Oh God, I'd still be working at Home Depot in Park City. <laughs> is that what you're doing? I was, yeah. I was working at Home Depot right. when I started climbing. Yeah. Right. And, uh, that was what got me out of there. Right. Thank God. So these guys you were with, Nolan, and what was the other cat? Kyler, Kyler. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, everybody blossomed together. Did you guys all, like, start getting into adventures together? Yeah, yeah, we did. And then uh, I remember there was a moment when Nolan and Kyler decided they were moving to Moab. And Nolan bought a van. And Kyler was a total dirtbag. He had, like, lived in shacks he built in the mountains for, like, two years. <laughs> So he decided he was going to move into Nolan's van with him, and they were taking off to Moab and mm -hmm. leaving me alone. Initially, I was like, you guys are so dumb. It's going to be so hot. You're not going to last two months down there. You don't even know how to trad climb. Like, what are you going to do? But they went, and uh, I went down there for uh, like Memorial Day weekend or mm -hmm. something, mm -hmm. and Kyler was working. He got some terrible job at a Hummer place and never got a day off. It kind of ruined his climbing he just couldn't do it at all and he was just working so that was a bummer but nolan came out to hang out and we tried ancient art and uh tried is the very key word there <laughs> like, um i lost my contacts while i was asleep i couldn't see we were epicking i think we were on the thing for like eight hours and like, <laughs> like it was it was awful i'm so glad no one was out there that day to witness it right. but we got to the corkscrew and he was trying to get up on it and couldn't figure it out at all. And I was just wigging out at the belay and he's trying to get me to say where to go. And I'm like, I can't see five feet right now, dude. I have no idea. There's just you and a blurry candlestick. <laughs> and he eventually, after like 30 minutes, bailed and came back. And then I went to try and didn't even make it as far as him. And we bailed and I went home and I was like, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> and so uh, I had a pretty nice car an Audi, which I was going bankrupt paying for at Home Depot anyway. So I sold it and I bought an 88 Subaru that had four. It was one of those ones that has like two wheel drive, four low, four high. It was a sweet rig. And I, I just took off to Moab like middle of the summer with no job prospect, hardly any money in my bank account and like a double rack of cams that was basically the last thing that I bought before I went. Then my car broke down when I got there, <laughs> but uh, it was good best best move in my life i think like right. if i can think of one single pivotal moment that like truly like shaped the direction of my life that was it for sure so this wasn't couldn't have been that long ago right this was probably 2012 or 13 okay right so a decade anyway yeah almost which doesn't in my like climbing career doesn't seem like that long ago but that decade's solid that's yeah. a solid amount of time so i'm always interested like you you guys kind of come from the hinterlands. You figured out climbing by yourself. Mm -hmm. You're probably doing things that work really well and things that probably don't work really well. Mostly things that did not work really well. <laughs> and so what was it like to suddenly interface with a climbing community and be around? I mean, Moab 10 years ago is a freaking mecca already of, yeah. of rock climbers. And the creek is tons of people and famous people and... Well-known people, like, what was it like to suddenly interface with, uh, I with think the we world were, of, of climbing? I think we were shunned. 
So you weren't interfacing? No, not really. We were trying to, but I, I'm sure uh, I'm sure Lisa will attest to this mm-hmm. that we were like Hathaway, yeah, the Queen of Moab, the Queen, yeah, the Queen yeah. Bee. I'm sure she would testify that everyone that knew what they were doing thought that we were an accident waiting to happen when right. we got there. Right. And that was probably fair, but we were like good enough that like our climbing itself made it so we weren't taking a bunch of falls and we were pretty meticulous. Like we weren't just like winging it. We were doing as much research as we could right. and like asking anyone we could. And every once in a while, someone would give us a hand and somewhere around the end of that season, we had our shit together enough that people were willing to go climbing with us. Okay. And then we actually got some like direction and some teaching and some mentorship mm-hmm. in some ways. And you locked into a, per- a like uh, living in Moab full time. Uh, more or less, like not right. through the winters. I was going back to Park City, okay, to work up there, okay. But I was there like March through November every year, right? For three years, right. probably. And uh, I also hated crack climbing when I moved there. I tried it once, and I was awful. Like I was possibly the worst first time crack climber ever. <laughs> it took me an hour and a half to top rope Jolly Rancher, and uh. I like came home and almost wanted to quit, but then I was like, no, actually, I kind of want to get good at this. So mm-hmm. when I got to Moab, I just like was going to the crack house, like as much as I could, because I couldn't get partners that much. So, and me and Nolan were working different schedules a lot, and Kyler was working all the time. So I would just go there because I didn't know how to hand jam at all. Like they were just sliding out, and that kind of locked it in for me, and I figured it out, and it became like my specialty for a while. Yeah, I like shunned Mill Creek. I wasn't into it. <laughs> Can we talk about Mill Creek on the podcast? Yeah, yeah, dude. That's that place is blown out. Come on, we could we've talked. Yeah, we could talk about. Just Mill make Creek. sure Eric doesn't hear this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a giant parking area and stuff now. I know there's a sign. Yeah, there's a sign. It's so, locked in. Um. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. The Moab guy is like not into crack climbing. Um, yeah. Showed up, but but it all started to dial in, and and um, it sounds like maybe Kyler kind of. Fell by the wayside in terms of climbing, and oh, you a little and bit, yeah. Started started hanging out pretty tight, yeah, all the time. Because right. I mean, we didn't work that much, and we did work morning shifts a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, I would like get off balloon crew and go into town. And if I had nothing to do, I'd just wait for him to get off work at the coffee roaster shop, mm-hmm. and then we'd go. You get off what balloon crew? Yeah, I was on a hot air balloon crew. Oh, I finally I did lock a job down. That was the first one I got. <laughs> Not really recommended. So that's like a dawn kind of job or pre-dawn. Oh my god! Like three a.m. Yep. through right. the whole summer, and you're trying to sleep in your broken down Subaru at like seven p.m. when the sun's raging and it's one hundred and fifteen <laughs> degrees out. It was a nightmare. <laughs> but it was a job, and it got it got me there, and it right. gave me like the day to climb. So right. it was fine. Yeah. No, th- that that's a good part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You guys, you got to drop that balloon down by what? Like, oh, it was usually landed by like ten, nine or ten. Right. But we had some epics where the balloon just did not, like, they couldn't land because they were just going over all the wrong terrain and though mainly out of the by, heat. was, like, keeping it aloft or what? The wind would just oh. pick up and it would take off like a freight train. And, like, you don't want to land a balloon at 50 miles an hour. And so some days we would have to chase the balloon, like, way out. You know Dubinky Road? No. By Bartlett Wash? Yeah, vaguely, yeah, yeah. So the highway by there, but you don't turn into Bartlett. 
we would chase the balloon like 20 miles out to Binky with like a 20 foot flatbed trailer and our boss and just being like, in the balloon. you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta get to the landing area now. And it was kind of high stress. So there's clients in the balloon. Yeah. Yeah. Just, it's like, this is part of the deal. You get an extra, you're getting an extra special trip because we're, yeah. we're like 50 miles from Moab now. He always kept an extra bottle of champagne oh, in right. the truck for like the really bad trips. <laughs> But it was usually pretty tame. It was like once a month that it was a total shit show, and I'd be like, oh, I'm not going to get to town till four. Sorry. Right. right. Well, that's pretty rad. So let me ask you this. So was there like a climb or, you know, a moment or even a season where you felt like, like you graduated? Maybe Fine Jade. Mm-hmm. I tried it. We tried it twice, and we just epicked, like. 15 hour day on fine jade mm-hmm. in, in like august too like because we didn't understand that the sun is the devil right when you're rock climbing so, <laughs> so you're talking about being shunned and i can just no offense but i could just totally imagine like no i visualize if i was me. like at the base of J- fine jade and you guys rolled up i'd just be like all right let's get out of here oh man i've <laughs> i've taken less gear to climb el cap than i was taking to climb fine jade back then <laughs> That's that's awesome. It was good. So that yeah. that was probably the one where I was like, okay, we actually like we're pretty good at this. Once now. you not the fifteen hour one, but the no, I had like a normal day, a normal like a day on three four hour right, day where right. I sent it, and I was I was like, okay, uh, I don't suck anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny that you fought through all that for so long. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I've I don't know what pushed me. <laughs> I get so many more. I get so many people. It's great. Cause there's like, you know, so I don't, this is probably apocryphal and it's not really how it happened, but you know, so many people are like, yeah, I took right to it. And I was like, you know, it felt so supernatural and like, <laughs> it sounds like there was a little bit more of a, of a trial and error. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you guys survived at least back in those days. Yeah. And, and you learn a lot and you, you, most importantly, you become self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. You like immediately learn to become a climber that's not relying on other people. Right. And I think that not encouraging anyone to do it, but it it does help you be motive, like know if you're motivated or not. Right. Because if you can get through that, then you probably are like, like in your heart, you're probably a climber uh-huh. for sure. Yeah. But if that kind of stuff is happening and you're not working through it, then like you're either going to be like on the really slow train or it's just not for you. Mm-hmm. So I I I appreciated it. They right. gave a lot of really fun stories. Well, I think it's. I mean, you're right about it being this position where you didn't have like the limitations of what you were supposed to be as a rock climber. Yeah, or someone being like, you need to be more careful right, right now. I mean, there had to have been a couple of those people, though. Uh, there probably were, <laughs> but I may have ignored them. I'm not really sure. Right. But it all worked out, and it was like a couple years, and mm-hmm. then we were actually like styled and dialed and knew what we were doing. Right. We were legit, and we were operating well. Right. And that was nice to get over that hump. Right. Right. And how long did you guys, uh, or did you spend in 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 uh, on that kind of like? Moab Park City thing was that interrupted then by the Ure um, trip that we we talked about. No, when, that was later. It was right. probably like I probably did that for like two years, mm-hmm. and I I hit a point. It was the snow was so bad in Utah for a couple years that I was like I'm sick of like wishing I was snowboarding, 
when I could just be rock climbing. Right. So that was when I switched gears to like climbing year round mm -hmm. as like just rock climbing. Right. For a few years. So just down there in Moab. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty rad. Cause I mean, it's like probably, like I just said, I, I probably like walked by you guys or crossed paths with you at some point. Oh God. Probably. Like, all right. Well, we're going to another crack. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Nah, maybe, maybe not, but, but yeah, it's funny because I mean, yeah, Moab's this place like that's, I mean, got a lot of folks that are just like dabbling and some, you know, come in for a year and then, and then leave. But it sounds like you guys were like in for, felt like you were in for the long haul with this. Thing. Yeah. 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 If you, if you just imagine your classic wall street scene, mm -hmm. we were in that scene. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's paints the perfect picture. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, wall street is like. Again, this is, you know, this is an international podcast, but it's like, I mean, it's literally like a road with these walls directly on the highway. And uh, it's, I mean, in Moab, I mean, there's hard routes there for sure and scary routes and everything else. But it's like the, it's definitely the easiest hit out of town um, with a lot of easy routes. A lot of guiding goes on there and stuff yeah. like that. So the running joke in Moab is the river guides who kind of like climbing, climb at Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally awesome. But yeah, so let's move on. So one of the reasons we're we're here to talk is to is to kind of talk about your friend Nolan. Yeah, and um, you guys had a terrible accident on El, El Gigante in in Chihuahua, and uh, Nolan was killed in this accident. So mm -hmm. if you want to switch gears now and and start talking about a little bit about that, because yeah, like I said, one of the reasons you got in touch with me was to talk a little bit about Nolan mm -hmm. and um, sort of remember him. Yeah, and, uh, and and talk a little bit about what happened with that, mm -hmm. which was intriguing to me because I also have this uh, connection to El Gigante, which is in southern Chihuahua, Mexico, and uh, was the last place that I climbed with Hayden Kennedy, and he didn't pass away on that wall, but but uh, the following year he did um, took his own life. But also, in addition to that, with El Gigante is, is a really interesting part of my life because the three people who I was with on that climbing expedition, all of them have passed away. And it's yeah. like this weird place I, I, I kind of like have in this little miniature part of climbing history as being this last guy standing from this otherwise like pretty basic, you know, adventurous but not super hardcore expedition yeah and nobody you know and again like on our trip everything was fine but then it was like one two three over the next year mm -hmm. um justin griffin died <clears throat> kyle dempster died both in the mountains and then like i said uh hayden took his own life so it it, it appears in my psyche as this really really intense place as well mm -hmm. and um small comparison to what you went through uh, but it's a comparison and it's, it's, you know, made me feel for what did happen uh, when you yeah. guys were down there. And I think in a deeper way than, than maybe some other folks. Yeah. I think last man standing is a good way to put it. Yeah. And I'm, sure. I'm going to fucking dive old age as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. So, you know, not to make light of it, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a terrible, it's sort of a terrible little legacy that I have. Um, mm -hmm you know, not by my own choice. So tell me a little bit about climbing with Nolan just in general 
and uh, we'll lead up to that. But what what do you think was special about you guys' partnership um, um, over the years? I think you know, the most special part was that we were just all in sync. Like we were like connected in more of a way than just like we belayed for each other and we held the rope. Like he was like, he was my brother. He was the closest thing I ever had to a brother. I grew up with two sisters. And after I moved away from Moab, he still stayed there. And that connection was strong enough that there would be times where I'd be thinking about calling him just to talk about problems, girlfriend problems, whatever, life problems. And he would call me. Or I would go to call him to like talk about like plans for like upcoming fall or spring or whatever, and I'd just try to hammer out a list of what we're gonna do, and we would have the like same list like to the T every single time, mm-hmm. and you know he was there there for me through everything through like the darkest darkest times I've ever dealt with. He was always there, and he was there any time of day, and uh, I trusted him more than anyone when it came to going climbing because I knew he was going to take care of me. I knew he was going to take care of me and my family if something happened. And I knew I could trust him to be on his shit and that I didn't have to worry. We didn't have to talk or harass each other. Um, We'd rib each other about things, but we never had to worry. And it was always fun. It, It, no matter how stressful anything got, it was always super fun and we always had a good time and we bickered like an old married couple, but we got along like famously, like in a way I haven't really found and I've been like looking really hard and yeah, it was any, any time with Nolan was the best time and we could talk about deep things or we could just joke and give each other shit all day long and we could just like, transition seamlessly through all of that and no one ever got their feelings hurt and if someone had to be told that they were doing something in a way that you didn't like there was never an argument it was just like okay well i'll just switch up however i'm doing this and move on so it was just always fun what were some of the adventures you guys got into well we uh i'm trying to think chronological order that doesn't matter we we did a free ascent of space shot together that was awesome I, I took a really bad fall on that route. I kind of got off route on like pit, this pitch after the crux. I took this huge fall and like ripped a couple pieces of gear because I, I somehow ended up on the aid line instead of the free climbing line. And I, yeah, I just blew it. And I took this like 50 footer and landed on my back. And he immediately went into rescue mode. I thought I had broken a rib, but it, I was fine. I was just rattled. And, uh, we didn't even have to talk about it. And I just went down to the belay and we went down to the bivy and we slept for the night. And next day we got back into it and mm-hmm. we didn't have to discuss it at all. Finished it out the next day. And it was awesome. And we did uh, the second free ascent of original sin out on Mount Hooker. That's a, a route out in Wyoming in the wind river range. Mm-hmm. It's a 2000 foot wall. It's famous for this Royal Robbins route and for Todd Skinner and Paul Piana route jaded lady. So Maury Birdwell and Jesse Huey did this free version of the Robbins route that I had always been intrigued by and Nolan was too. So we decided to go out there and Jesse and Maury happened to be around and they were super psyched and it was a really hard route and 
those guys are super rad because they did the like 12d crux pitch on beaks but they got permission afterwards to add a couple bolts so we put those bolts in and then finished off the route and that was an awesome trip we made a plan to go back the next year to do a new route together but that obviously didn't happen because mm-hmm. that was the year before his accident talk about the um the, the the opportunity to go down and climb el gigante yeah so it came up through nolan's girlfriend um savannah and she was working on a film and they needed some people to go down there ahead of time to do some light duty rigging mm-hmm. like we didn't have to rig for the shoot or anything all we had to do was go to the mountain bring a couple static ropes and on our way down the mountain because most people repel in these days i know mm-hmm. you walked in right we did a little bit of both. Yeah. We wrapped in and stashed on the, is it the Critter Bivy? Yeah. The second one. And then climbed out. And then and, went around. And then waited a day. Oh, no, the, that was the same day the guys went down to the bottom. They mm-hmm. wrapped. Um, Justin and, and Kyle wrapped. And so the next day we, we came down to the bottom which gave them a day to get ahead of us. Okay. So that was kind of complicated. But yeah, yeah we walked down to the bottom. Yeah, so we were wrapping eventually. the wall, mm-hmm. and uh, we just our only duty was to carry a few extra static ropes to leave on the anchors. Mm-hmm. And, and that was it. And then we were done, and we were on a climbing trip, and us getting there was funded. We weren't getting paid. We weren't... Right. We weren't getting like our food bought, but they got us there, and mm-hmm. they paid. they took care of the logistics and right. everything. So we got there and we just had time on our hands. So we were like, well, fuck it. Like we like hanging out on walls. So we just planned for like a seven day climb. <laughs> okay. Cause we're not like the raddest climbers, like a 13 a pitch here or there. We can do that. But a wall like that, that has like three or four of them. Mm-hmm. We kind of like wanted a real solid shot. Cause right. we didn't really want to have to go back to do it. Sure. Well, let me, uh, let's back up just a little bit. Like, Cause I don't think I've ever talked about this specifically, but like talk about just the logistics of this place. I mean, because we have an example of Mexico and we can kind of compare notes a bit of yeah. going to Potrero, which is like become like just complete, like almost European style vacation climbing. Yeah. You know, and this place is a little bit out there. So who are you guys working with or who was the, who are the powers at, at play working with down there to um to sort of outfit and be your um your fixer guy down there so we hired this guy tiny almada okay and tiny is the man like right. anyone who's going down there should try to hire tiny right. honestly because he's I think uh, our guy might have basically like retired yeah fernando? the guy yeah the ranch yeah at the ranch yeah fernando did help us out later okay. on, but we'll right. get to that right but uh tiny lives in chihuahua so the city of Chihuahua. All right. So you can fly in and he picks you up and he's a wall climber. He's climbed logical progression. He has, he did a first ascent on El Gigante. Mm-hmm. Like he's got first ascents all right. over that Canyon. Like he's a legit climber and he speaks really good English and really good Spanish. Mm-hmm. And he has kit at home that you can like get from him. Like if you need a portal edge, he's got it. Or if you need an extra right. haul bag or dry bags, like he, he can kit you out with anything you might've forgotten. And, give you the tour get you to all the right spots to get food like he's dialed and so we landed met him he picked us up and uh we did our errands we got our food we took care of our stuff and got our bags packed and the next day we got in his car 
and drove out to Basaseachi. And it's like a four or five hour drive from there, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's like rural Mexico. Like you're you're not anywhere near anything for almost the whole drive. It's kind of like driving through like the Western Sierra foothills mm -hmm. in some ways, only there's cartel everywhere. Right. Um, so you drive all the way in and he's got a guy, Valentin, who's a rancher in the town outside the park. And so, uh, Valentin is like, he helps tiny, but he can round up like local porters and that kind of thing mm -hmm. to carry your bags out. And so he's got the whole scene dialed, right. but you meet, you get there and then you have this long, gnarly dirt road to drive. And so we didn't, we don't go straight there. We go to sleep at Valentin's house. His wife made us amazing homemade tortillas and uh, what was it? Margarita was her name. And they were the sweetest people mm -hmm. ever. And then the next morning he rounded up his, uh, his boys and we drove out and it's like two hour dirt road drive just to get like near the top of El Gigante. And then you've got to carry bags like out across this kind of exposed ridge. Like right. it's definitely got sections that are like fourth, fifth class scrambling and you got to get like haul bags through it. Like it's, it's definitely complex to get in there unless you're super light and fast and you're doing it in a day or something. And then you're on top of the mountain and everyone leaves you and you're like in the middle of nowhere. Like it's remote. You're in like a national park, but it's not Yosemite. It's not even like the Black Canyon. Like it's, it's the Black Canyon's like big, mean older brother. Honestly, right. well, is the drug operation still in in uh, kind of, but kinda not like it, not bottom. like it used right, to be. Right. But uh, there are there are still some poppy fields down right. in there, and that was something I had to consider later. But because we were rafting and we didn't really think about it, time right. it was just like, yeah, don't go over there. Right, you might get shot. Yeah. <laughs> we actually got the opposite from fernando he was like oh don't worry about those guys are fine that they're, they're just farmers yeah they're just farmers with well, guns that is true yeah, yeah. well actually the the fernando was always always had a pistol on his hip too the whole time we oh, saw him. when i met him he had one too. Yeah, yeah yeah and i was and so and he would try to talk to us about how safe it was there and how we shouldn't worry and like la's just as dangerous or chicago's just as dangerous and and finally, I think it was Kyle's like, so if it's so chill here, why do you have a gun on your hip? <laughs> he was like, oh, yeah, there are, there are a few sons of bitches. And then he'd have a few drinks, and then he would start telling us about these gun, like, running gun battles that had happened up at the, like, up in town and shit like that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it was like, we were kind of like, all right, well, you know, maybe it's not super heinous, but... <laughs> <laughs> We're not gonna just like walk around with our mouths open. It's not either. super chill either. Right, right, right. So, but yeah. anyway, so you guys are going down on the wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we get dropped off, and it's like bone dry out there. And it's the, just the two of you. There's no it's other part of us. this like crew that's. There's nobody come in else. After, tiny, right? tiny left because he had right. another. He was running logistics for right. some other climbers and some other air, like some area way far away in Mexico, mm -hmm. not Petrero or El Salto. I don't remember where, but it was. It was way far away. It was like eight hours away, I think. Mm. And so he had to take off. So it was just us. And uh, we had like a weather forecast that said there was one day of snow coming. And I think we had 10 or 11 days till we needed to get back on a plane. So we were like, cool, whatever. We'll just chill one day of snow. That one day of snow turned into like two days of like full on blizzard. And like we had no snow gear really. 
like we had tennis shoes and no shovels and we were like we cut like an arrowhead water bottle to make a shovel to dig out our tent for two days yeah that's pretty wild because i don't think anyone ever thinks about that when they have mexico in the sentence no it's yeah. it's super alpine we didn't get there. any of those troubles but we had but fernando had told us that like a couple weeks before it had like dumped yeah and he had pictures of it with like a foot of snow on the ground yeah and like that's what happened and like to give an idea, like the waterfall, I don't remember the name of that waterfall by the wall. Right across the way. Yeah, yeah. right across the way. Not Basasayachi Falls. No. But it was bone dry when we showed up. And when this storm was over, it was raging. Like it was a right. lot of moisture. And yeah, on the third day we woke up, skies were clear, but there was like a foot of snow on the ground. But we were at a point where we were like, well, we should probably get in because we only had a few more days till another round of storm was coming in. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to get ahead of it a little bit. So we started wrapping and, you know, those upper rappels, they're like low angle. They're not mm-hmm. sweet with a big haul bag. And we had two fully loaded like BD Zion haul bags, like the biggest one you can get. And we were like riding the haul bags on rappel, like sledding through the snow. I was colder there than I was on several days guiding ice in the winter right before that. And we started in and like, it's just water everywhere seeping on everything. And we weren't going as fast as we thought we were going to go. We hit the critter bivy and dumped one of our bags and then carried on. And Nolan led the rappels and I followed with the bag. And like, I bonked so hard to the point that I was like, this was like pre COVID lockdown. Right. But it was like scare. And I bonked so hard. My head was hurting so bad that I was like, shit, I've got COVID right now. Like, this right. is not the yeah, place to like be the that February sick. before. What month was it? This was the beginning of March. Right. Yeah. So we flew out like March 1st. Right. And uh, so I'm having this freak out that I've got COVID. It's dark and we're trying to get to the, the bivy at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember. Oh, the tower tower of power yeah, yeah. whatever yeah right yeah. The, the second bit or the first bivy from the ground yeah so we made it but it was like a really long day and it kind of like wore me out for sure and nolan too but we were always really good at ribbing each other enough to like be able to go climbing still right so the next day we like went back to the bottom climbed back up to the bivy wasn't really that big of a deal there was like a lot of rock fall on the wall like left of us like there's some aid climbs over mm-hmm. there and there was like rock coming down the whole time and that was like not sweet and even going into that trip i did i had a bad feeling mm-hmm. about the whole trip and it was like you know like you go to climb a big route you have general jitters general nervousness that's like normal that's just Mm -hmm. human instinct but this was like beyond that and this like normally those jitters go away when i start climbing and i was just feeling the same like pit in my stomach about something but i couldn't pin it down and we were operating super safe like we were using backups on our repels like we were we were like buttoning it down like guide mode style and we agreed we would yeah because you're out there yeah we were out there like you don't yeah. We weren't we weren't trying to like be like right. oh we're clipping bolts so this is so yeah. chill like, that's I think that's a, something that that route sort of engenders a little bit yeah because it is all bolted you yeah know, it's like eighteen draws or something as the rack yeah, that's but sweet. you're fucking out there you know you're you're alone yeah you you are way out there you are in the mountains and 
Like since so I we climbed were it, that's been my ma- people have asked me like, oh yeah, what's up with that? And like, oh, we're headed, we're thinking of heading down there. And I'm like, yeah, just you know, you're out there and it's Mexico, but it's not even Mexico, Mexico. It's like deep in the woods, Mexico. Yeah. So there ain't gonna be anybody there to help you. No. Right. No. There's right. there's really not. No. And uh, yeah, I was feeling that way, but we were climbing really well. Right. That day we like got to the bivy, we made some dinner, we did that twelve deep hitch like above the bivy, and then fixed our ropes and wrapped back down. And then you have that first that first five thirteen pitch. And we went up the next morning, got like a casual start. We weren't really like super stressed about waking up early because that wall's in the shade all day and it's cold in the morning. And so we had a casual morning. We like listened to rap music in the portal edge because it was Nolan's day to pick music. I'm usually more of a rock and roll or heavy metal person, but he was really into rap and Cardi B specifically. Okay. <laughs> so we had an agreement that we would take turns of who got to pick the music for the day. <laughs> and uh so it was his day. We listened to Cardi B at breakfast. And we went up and we we did that pitch. It took a few tries, but we got it done pretty quickly. And uh, it was always easier to climb that hard with Nolan because he was really good at just getting beta really fast. And so he got the beta and I was able to just replicate it. Mm -hmm. And then we got into like the first debate of the trip, which was, do we like carry on and take the kit or do we push our fixed ropes higher and come back to the bivy and carry on in the morning? And I'd been quarterbacking a lot. For like the last couple days and Nolan it was his turn to quarterback and he really wanted to like climb and try and get up to that like next 12d pitch the like really sandbagged one <laughs> right yeah so he really wanted to like climb and try to get that pitch done and we had spotted this little like hanging portal edge bivy that had a tiny ledge on it on the way down so we were like well we'll try to get there and if we don't send that pitch then we'll just go up and we'll come back down and so that was the plan. And I fought him on it really hard and he pushed back and I eventually I relented just because it's a partnership and there's ebbs and flows and you've got to relent and I didn't personally really have a good reason other than I was like I just I don't want to. I didn't have a good reason, right? Yeah. And uh we carried on. We tried that pitch. It got dark as we tried that pitch. Neither of us got it. And so we went to go on, and then there's this 5.11, 11A pitch maybe right after that, and that was his lead. And we had just rock, paper, scissored at the bottom. And uh, he took he took off. We had like a cigarette together. I fist bumped him, told him to be really careful, don't go too fast, like it's dark and we don't need to hurry. We just need to climb like two five eleven pitches. Like this will go quick. Mm-hmm. And he agreed. We fist bumped and said, have fun. And he took off and everything was super tight. And we were double checking everything the whole time. Right. And I'm just, I'm watching his headlamp, like just go, 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 go. And I see him like get this ledge and he mantles up onto it and he's standing on it. And he grabs a draw and he's like reaching for the bolt. And as he's reaching for the bolt, the whole thing just like came out. And like it was dark. I don't know how big it was exactly, but it was huge. <laughs> and uh, 
like he just yelled rock. That was the only thing he cared about was like just warning me about what was happening. I ducked and this fucking thing, like this fucking massive block goes right over my head and like blows the hair on my head. And the rope came tight and then it was loose. And all I remember was like the rope going loose and seeing a headlamp go. And like, I didn't hear anything from him, but my only thought was like, my first thought was that his helmet fell off. Right. And then my second thought was like, why the fuck isn't the rope tight? And then I immediately was like, I was just like, I didn't put him on the way I fucked up. Like we totally fucked up and it's my fault. And I looked down and I had the Grigri and it was in my hands and it was loaded and everything was right. And I looked up and there was just this dangling end of sliced rope in my face. And I was like 14 pitches up a big wall and no one was gone. And I didn't know what to do. Like, like forever, I didn't know what to do. And I, I had a friend who had an accident like this who survived in the Bridger Jacks and his rope was cut on the second pitch of a root and the falling rock caught his rope. It like arrested his fall. It like caught it in a crack or something. And so I'm like wrestling and I'm like trying to deal and be real. But at the same time, I'm like hearing him like in my ear, like clear as day, like yelling up to me. And I'm just looking down and like trying to figure out if it's like real. And I spent two fucking hours at that belay just like trying to decide if like I thought he was down there or not. And, and I mean, I, I had to like come to grips at some point and just acknowledge that he wasn't down there, you know, and what was going on in my head was just like shock and trauma and it was just fucking with me. And so I grabbed my inReach and I I didn't even hit SOS because I was like, I don't know what to do. I was like, I'm on the wall. I don't I don't really like necessarily need rescue right now, but I want like some sort of recovery to get going. So I just I texted Savannah and told her what happened like as bluntly as I could. And obviously took her a while to deal, but I didn't know if I should hit SOS and I was trying to make a plan and like, I didn't really think I could repel. Because, you you know, there's that lichen traverse. Mm-hmm. That big, long traverse underneath me. And that was a motherfucker to, re- to repel with someone helping you on the other end with a bag. And there was a storm coming the next day. Right. Like, in the afternoon. So I was like, I can't, I can't ditch my bivy kit. I can't really wrap with my bivy kit. I don't know the fucking way out of this canyon at all. And so I I had to make the choice to like rope solo was like intense to decide. But we had a stick clip because, uh, yeah, our our friend Jordan, he like he also like epicked out there. And that's right. Yeah. And the only reason that like things went okay for him and Hayden was they brought a stick clip. Mm -hmm. So we brought one on like their recommendation. And so that was just what I went into doing. So wait, let me just put a hold on so you spent the night 
or the or you started doing this immediately i i waited an hour or two because i i needed to like right yeah yeah i mean after that yeah but it was still nice oh that's right because you're you're not at your at your bivy no we're two pitches away still and your shit is maybe three but you're sitting on your bags and stuff yeah so you have your stuff with you i have my stuff with me. okay so two hours later it's solidly night yeah i've smoked a whole bag of tobacco right and I remember you saying that to me, just like sitting there smoking cigs. Oh, dude, till my lips were like feeling sunburned. Like I plowed through a whole bag right then and there. And then I had to make a choice what to do. And I I couldn't like carry everything. So I had to like dive into the bag and start throwing his shit off the wall. I had to throw his shoes. I had to throw like everything. I, I kept like a shirt or two for Savannah and for his mom. But I couldn't, I couldn't keep anything else because I had to go light. And I even went so far, I was like dumping out water because mm-hmm. the critter bivy was like five pitches away, and I needed to get there by the next evening anyway. So I was like, I can't be carrying like two days of water for two people right now. So I dumped everything but a gallon. And then uh, I told Sav what I was doing, and. Uh, she took care of everything else, like left me alone, like started getting people together to come down for a rescue, took care of telling his parents, which fucking sucks for her. And I don't envy that. And uh, she left me alone to do my thing. And I made it, I made it two pitches. And then I was at our bivy that we were aiming for and the sun came up. Right. And at that point, I'm just like, I'm, I'm like wasted. Dude, you like completely wrung out. Yeah, totally. Like I, I've already been like rock climbing for like 24 hours right. at that point because we woke up early, ish, like seven or eight. That's a casual big wall start, right? Right. <laughs> so I've been climbing for nearly 24 hours, and I was tired, and I knew it, and I didn't want to fuck up. So I just set up my portal edge, put up the rain fly, laid down to just take a nap. And at that point, Savannah was like, you need to like hit the red button or it was either that point or at the bottom of the pitch below somewhere in there. She was like, you need to hit the button because we need to like get more things in motion mm-hmm. than just what I have going in motion. So I hit it and then um, like just sat there listening to podcasts Um smoking more cigarettes more so there, cigarettes there's like uh i'll just enter i was drawn into this story in the night because uh angela van weemersh called me mm-hmm. and i i was either driving back from the desert or going to the desert i think to the north wash and i got the call and i was like oh cool angela like sweet i love talking to angela you know mm-hmm. and but also like why is Angela calling me, you know, cuz we're not like bosom buddies or anything. Yeah. And then and then right away she was just like frantic on the phone and I you know, and it was a classic thing where I was like, "All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to pull over. You, you know, and he she like sprayed what it all happened. I'm like, "Okay, well, you know, we can take a minute here. It's not, you know, because she was like, "We need to know what to do and like, mm-hmm. do you know who to talk to down there and do you know how to get to the bottom and I was like, all right, just chill because, you know, five more minutes is not like critical and we need yeah. to calm it down a little bit. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I offered as much help as I could be, which was very little. And yeah. I, you know, because I don't want to say anything like I helped in a way because those those women 
they are the ones who like they crushed it they crushed it savannah yeah. and angela right. and sasha too right. they they all like got everything going they got mm-hmm. all the gears turning right and like they're awesome for it because it was hectic and they were down there like in 24 hours or maybe just under i right. think um well and it was, i was like okay well what's aaron's situation and and i'm i was like were they wall climbing do they does he have bivy gear like um and that's when i was like okay well you know let's go fast but like i think he's probably going to be okay for a couple days if that's what their plan was yeah as a wall climber i'm like you know he's got some water and some food like yeah and you know that's what i was telling everyone too because i knew the weather was coming right and so i knew it was gonna suck yeah but i was but i was like i will i will like make it right if i have to stay down here but i was like if you if people come down here and they're not ready and this storm hits with all the fury of satan i'm not going to be prepared to take Mm -hmm. care of all of those people so i was like everyone needs to be calm try and make it happen but if it can't happen reasonably like don't do it right like don't come down here and i'm telling them this and i'm also like just at this point i'm like several hours into the day now and i'm not really sleeping like i'm like five minutes here five minutes there and eventually i'm like i'm in an exposed place and i'm out of like food and water like i have a day of it left so i was like i need to go like i need to get these last three pitches out of the way and i know that when you're like the victim and you're like the one that people are trying to rescue and you're texting shit on the inreach like i'm gonna solo up the wall people freak out because they they just don't quite understand what you're like really doing which is just stick clipping and pulling up a rope and stick clipping and right. pulling up a rope. And so I was told to stay put, which was agony because I just wanted to do anything to like distract myself or to just feel like I was doing something. And they just kept insisting like, don't move, don't move, don't move, don't move. Mm-hmm. And they got a hold of tiny and tiny like bailed on the job he was doing and rushed back. Right. He rounded up a friend, um, Jose Martinez, aka Bicho, and they came and the military was there. And the reason they hadn't got to me by the time the rain started was that the military was holding them up and insisting that a liaison goes. And this liaison had a two inch webbing, like rental type harness, a figure eight, and a prusik. And they were like trying not to let Tiny go. And Eventually, he hit a point where he was like, we need to go now or we're not going and we can't do that. And I I, I think he like potentially risked like prison time. Right. Like he defied the military, which you don't do in Mexico. No. And he went down and they got me and we like jugged for hours through the night in the pouring rain. And we brought my bags up to Critter Bivy, left it there with the intent to go back and get it later. But we just grabbed what we needed out of there and we carried on and topped out in like this just apocalyptic storm. And Valentin was there with some of his wife's tortillas, which was great. (laughs) And me, Jose and Tiny crawled into a cave and like just had to like spoon all night in this like gnarly storm that when we were soaked to the bone and there were no extra clothes or anything for us to wear. And this storm raged for like three days. So it would have been like 
it would have been really bad if I had been pinned down where I was instead mm-hmm. of where I was trying to go. But they got me. But as soon as they got to me, I like turned into a robot and I was like not processing what was right, going on anymore. Right. And I just turned into like recovery mode and I was like, we have to go get him. Like I'm, I'm not leaving here unless we actually make like a real effort to go fucking get him. And if we do and we fail, then I can like live with that. But I was like, I'm not just going to walk away from here. And so we hung out in Bosayashi for three days waiting for the military to get their shit together but it's a bureaucracy and everyone's talking to their boss and their boss and their boss and nothing was getting done. So it came time to like make an executive decision. Angela called up our friend, uh, Jackson Marvell and Jackson was climbing in Jackson hole and he bailed on his personal project, drove down to salt Lake, got on a plane, flew to Chihuahua, hopped in a helicopter and flew out to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a short window, but like a one day window between rounds of this storm and the military didn't have it together. So we rounded up a chopper and uh, the military was pissed. Like, I I honestly thought that they were just going to like ground us, not let us go. But eventually we were just like, we're American citizens, like we're going. So me and Jackson went at first. It was supposed to be me, Jackson, Savannah and our friend Jordana but the winds were too high. The pilot couldn't take four people. And I had to make a choice about who to bring. And there were reports because of this shitty drone camera that he might've been on the wall. And so, and in that same zone where we were seeing that rock fall a few days before, right. Which is like aid country and Jackson's a good aid climber. So I had to make the choice and say that I was bringing Jackson and it was like devastating for Savannah and I wasn't psyched about it either. I wanted her to go, but I I had to make a choice of like who who was going to help me get him home if I was only going to go with one person. And so I had to I had to choose. And uh it wasn't sweet. Right. But it it worked out and Savannah was able to come on a second round. But it was like full Vietnam style going in there. Well, where did the chopper get you guys to? Uh it flew us to the base of the wall. So you did it land basically in the poppy field or something? No, but we couldn't land because all the grass down there yeah. is like eight feet high. Yeah, right. right. That's what I'm asking. Is it's a, yeah? I mean, it's like temperate rainforest. So that's what I mean when there. I say like Vietnam right. style. Me and Jackson speak. Sh- he speaks none, and I speak very shoddy Spanish. Mm-hmm. And we're just like doing flybys, trying to see if we spot him on the wall, and we saw. It was his thermarest, thankfully. And then we come in to land, and the only thing I heard the pilot say was, Saleh! Saleh! Which I know enough to know that that means, like, jump or leave. Right. Which sucks, because you're, like, 20 feet off the ground. And I was like, this is how Rescue 2.0 starts. Right. <laughs> like, both of you guys break your not legs. Not sweet. Yeah. And so I, like, get out, hang off the strut, and just drop into the brush and just hope I'm not landing on a rock or something. And then Jackson nearly exited the helicopter without throwing our bags out, <laughs> oh. which we barely caught, thank God. And then we had to just like go to work scanning. And uh, like Jackson found him, and I I don't want to talk about you found. But we found him, and I checked out, and like I lost my fucking mind. And I just I was like I can't do I can't do anything else with this anymore. 
I'm here. We found him. Right. We're going to get him out. I And I was just like, I'm going to go look for fucking katanas in the bushes. <laughs> and uh, Savannah and Jordana got in, and they, they pretty much took care of everything, like, with getting him ready. And mm-hmm. a lot stronger than me. And, uh, yeah, then the military was like, oh, actually, we're ready to go. And so the next day, they came in to do the pickup. The body recovery. Yeah, to yeah. do the pickup. And that was like monster. Did the State Department get involved? Did you guys go that route as well? I mean, they I, must have eventually. I I honestly right, don't, don't know. quite know. Right. Um, I do know that after all of it was said and done, and we got back to Chihuahua, I had to go through like an interrogation with like state police, mm-hmm. and it didn't really, it didn't feel like they were like accusing me of anything. But it's still just like not what you want to deal with at that right. point. You're just like, I want to go to the hotel and drink tequila right now. Right. But they, I had to do it. Right. And so Tiny went with me and translated. And I was like, but don't they speak English? And he was like, yeah, they probably do. But you need someone here who legit speaks Spanish because they might fuck you. So he went with me. And uh, and then we drank tequila and chihuahua for like right. a few days. But through the course of all this, COVID lockdown was starting. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Like, as this is happening. And so everyone who's coming from the states to help is telling me about it but i have no cell phone service so i'm not getting updates or like checking the news or anything and they're just like it's crazy home is crazy and i'm like right. what does that mean like is this is crazy right <laughs> like, right you're not helping like everything is crazy right, <laughs> right now you're right. not really defining anything right. and uh angela and savannah and sasha and everyone went home jackson stayed to go with me and Tiny to get our bags off the wall because I wasn't going to leave my shit there. Nolan would have been pissed. That's like way not his style to leave shit on a wall. Mm -hmm. So they stayed with me and we went back. And after we were done with that, when we got back to service, everyone who had just gone home was like, it's a nightmare here. So it was just like piling on. Yeah. As the whole thing went on. And uh, Jackson and I were supposed to see a Tool concert. We tried to change our plane tickets to make that happen, and that got canceled. Right. I was like, that was devastating, too. I was hoping to do, like, something fun, you know? Right. Just something to, like, unwind and not think about it. And instead, I came home to, like, I couldn't go see anyone I cared about. I couldn't go see anyone that was Nolan cared about. I couldn't, like, I couldn't do any of the things that you normally do to unwind when you right. deal with something like that, right. like give people closure and get some consolation and like just reminisce about your friend that's gone. I got none of that. And then on top of all that, the day after we landed in Salt Lake, there was a fucking earthquake and it like shook the building we were staying in to the point that I woke up and was like contemplating diving out the third story window of this building. Like it was an earthquake and so it was just like going on and on and on and on the whole time. And then once it was like the whole situation with Nolan was settled down, I just had to go stay at my parents' house for two weeks, see nobody, right. talk to nobody. And I just I just plowed through tequila. I brought a duffel bag of tequila home from Mexico, which was like I didn't know what else to do. 
and I like wanted to quit climbing for a little while, but I had the profound realization that while like I lost arguably the most important person in my life because of it, I would have never had that person in that way if it wasn't for it. And so I had to just make a decision that it was, it was going to be sacrilege and it was going to be like dishonoring him and what we were doing if I did quit. Mm-hmm. It just, it wasn't going to fly and it wasn't going to sit well with me. So this was 2020, a year and a half ago, March, you know, and we communicated a little bit in there. And I mean, I had, I don't think I had anything really helpful to say other than, you know, that I was sorry. And, but I mean, what happened to get you to this point? Cause here we, I mean, we're talking openly about, about Nolan and, and, mm-hmm. you know, we both choked up a bit, but I know from, I mean, Hayden, I can't always just talk openly about him. Yeah. Even now. And I wasn't directly involved the way you were. So tell me a little bit about if there has been healing, if, if there were moments where you've, you know, made strides forward from it. I mean, aside from like that realization that climbing was still important to you and would have been important to him. But yeah. how um, did you survive this? Mostly I dove in and just tried to pick what I could do when I could do it. And uh, I mean, honestly, the first thing I did when lockdown was over and I could like go do what I wanted was I was like, I need I need to face down like some fucking choss. Because we've all, like all of us who have climbed on a big route or we've done any sort of trad climbing, we've all like tapped on that block and we've all like wiggled at it and we've all like looked at it and we've all made that decision of like, it's good enough. Mm -hmm. And most of us, it's turned out fine most of the time, right? So I needed to like go chase down some shitty rock and just like remind myself that like, it was a fucking accident and he wasn't fucking up and we were operating tighter than we ever had. And I needed to like know that we weren't, we weren't operating in a crazy way. Mm -hmm. So I called Jackson and I was like, I want to go free climbing in the Fisher towers. And we went and we tried to free the phantom sprint, but it was, it was good. And that was the first thing I did that since I got home, that just made me feel like I, I do love what I'm doing. And I believe in what we were doing. And in a lot of ways, Jackson has become like my closest friend. He's be- he's become like the closest thing I had to Nolan. Mm-hmm. And he's always willing to listen. He goes on so many trips that I can't get a hold of him all the time. Right. But he's always willing to listen. And he's always willing to like show up and help me if I'm like, if I'm down or if I'm just like cruxing out and I just need like a good adventure to just unwind and so we did that, and I recruited them right away to go do that new route that Nolan and I were going to do on Mount Hooker. I didn't want to go alone, though, like with one person, because I was just, I was too wigged out about being alone on a remote wall with just one partner again. Mm-hmm. So we called up Drew Smith, and Drew was psyched, and he came along too. And uh, we went out there. The line Nolan and I had picked, I did some research. It turned out that that it's a total shit section of wall. There's like two A3 routes that just 
report like massive amounts of Chaucie five eight climbing. So we picked a different line, and it it turned out awesome, and it was like that was like the thing for me that after I did that, I was like, I feel like I've like I've honored his memory. I've mm-hmm. given him like what he wanted because we were in the tent on top of El Gigante and we were talking about that trip nonstop and he just kept saying like, I just want to do something like get my name on that wall because it's like the most impressive wall I've ever seen in my life. And so I needed to do that for him. And we did, we called it a, the optimist for him. Eternally optimistic. And, uh, we lucked out and it turned out really good and it's not a shit pile. For him. Right. And uh, I got to go climbing with a bunch of other people that were really close with him. Our friend Casey, who's a climbing ranger in Yosemite, we did free rider together. We got it right as COVID lockdown lifted there, which was magical because it was just us. Mm-hmm. There's no one else on El Cap. There's no one driving around. And we just got to spend like four days talking about Nolan. And that was just part of mine and Nolan's to-do list. And I had a list and I've been just trying to chip away at it as much as I can. I've done a lot, but I, I haven't totally finished the list yet, so I'm still I'm still working on right. it. And so where's compare your climbing and like your attitude towards it now versus let's say in the weeks leading up to that El Gigante trip? Like what's the evolution look like? Do you um, think? I always looked at climbing as this thing that I was doing because I thought it was reasonably safe compared to other things. Like I wanted to base jump and that like very quickly became apparent that I didn't want to do that Mm -hmm. because it was too dangerous. And so I kind of always had this thing like climbing's it's dangerous, but like, it's not that dangerous. And my friend, my best friend who was a base jumper died clipping bolts on a pitch way under his limit. And and that made me just realize that I, I needed to stop being naive about it and start being accepting of it and acknowledge that like I am taking risk and that it's not fair to me or to the people around me to act like I'm not. But I am. And it fulfills me and it gives me focus and it's given me all the best people in my life. And that's the most important thing I hold on to with it is that I wouldn't have any of the closest friends that I have or have had if it wasn't for going climbing. And so that's why I still want to continue to do it because I want to be able to meet awesome people and I want to be able to share special experiences in special places that not everyone on the planet can see. And I like to challenge myself. And so, yeah, I had to, I had to come to grips with why I was really doing it and whether it was for my ego or to impress people and, or if I was doing it for me and, uh, I, I realized I was, but it it was hard and I've had to have hard talks with people and, you know, I want to live a long life, but I also know that like I could die in the mountains and I want the people that love me to know that if that happened, it wasn't what I was looking for.
All right, folks. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Aaron for making that happen. And I've been thinking about it a lot since we did this interview and how if you stay in the game long enough, you know, as far as adventure climbing is concerned, you're probably going to have some sort of paradigm-shattering incident. Maybe not as serious as what happened to Aaron and Nolan, but there'll be something that happens that sort of shatters the notion that it's all fun and games. Every moment is sort of better than the last and bring you down to earth a little bit. But it's also nice to hear that that can be survived. And I believe that Aaron is surviving it. I'm sure he has his moments of clarity and and then back into the fog. But nevertheless, I think he's surviving it. And uh, that's nice to hear because you lose somebody like that in those circumstances and it could break you. So with that in mind, and I know I say it every episode, but it does mean something to me. And I do want you guys to be safe because I've seen the fallout of these tragedies. I've experienced it. And it's sad and it's life shattering. And frankly, mostly climbing is supposed to be fun and games. So keep it that way. Take it easy. Communicate. And of course, check your knots. I just want everyone to know that if you are out there and you are doing shit like this, you're adventure climbing, you're climbing big walls, you're climbing remote rock routes, you're climbing alpine routes, you're doing anything where you're leaving service to do something that is dangerous, you need to respect the people who you could leave behind. You need to buy an inReach. It's inexcusable not to have it anymore. And in an event that something only happens to one of you, it could save the other person's life. Everyone who's doing this shit needs to buy rescue insurance. And they need to make sure it's good, reliable rescue insurance. And then on top of all that, if you're doing this shit, you should have a will. Because if you don't have one, you leave a mess for everyone who loved you to deal with. And they are all hurting and they all care about your things. And it's a lot of your stuff might not be sentimental to just one person. And if you have people who are important in your life and you want to make sure they have something, you need to put it in writing and get it done so that they have one less thing to deal with. You need to do everything you can to make it easier for the people who are still going to be here because it matters. And it's going to affect their ability to like move forward.